Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome into another edition of Mile High Magazine. I am Murphy Houston. Hope you're having a great day. Today we're joined by Andrew Romanov, the president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, former Speaker of the House for Colorado. And Andrew, welcome into the show. Thanks, Murphy. I appreciate it. Glad to have you here. With a, let's talk about that transition because I've, <laughs> I've I met you a long time ago, and you were doing the political thing, and now you're doing something really important, working with Mental Health Colorado. How did you make that transition? Yeah, I tell folks I used to run the House of Representatives. Now I run a mental health organization. So you can supply your own punchline at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, People ask me what's the difference between running the state house and running a mental health group. The difference, by the way, is that mental illness is treatable. Uh, so. <laughs> Oh, man, where's the drummer when you need him? I I worked on these issues when I was in the State House because uh, it is a cause near and dear to me. Uh, I was raised by a social worker, so my mom always taught me what can happen when mental illness goes untreated. My family learned about that the hard way uh, three years ago when I lost uh, a young woman I thought of as my kid's sister. She was actually my first cousin to to suicide, uh, in part because of a depression that went undetected and undiagnosed and and untreated. Uh, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life along with my family trying to figure out how we missed the signs of her mental illness. Boy, you know, you hear that a lot, Andrew. How did we miss the signs? Uh, it's out of the blue. For my family, it was obviously the worst event in our lives. This job happens to have come about a, a couple months later. And I thought, even if I can't save my cousin, maybe I can spare other families from this kind of anguish is the more I work in this field, the more people I meet who have gone through similar experiences. Uh, more than a thousand Coloradans die by suicide every year. It seems to touch a lot more families than we probably realized several years ago, but because of current events, I think more and more of it's coming out and going, hey, I've got that problem too. What can I do to get help? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Look, I mean, this is not some exotic disease that's no. confined to no. a tiny fraction of the population. This is an issue that touches every single family in the state. Uh, more than a million Coloradans experience a mental health or substance use disorder in a given year. Uh, half of them, about half a million, don't get the care they need. Uh, so the organization I lead, Mental Health Colorado, aims to change that. We want every Colorado to have access to high-quality mental health care. Well, talk more about Mental Health Colorado, because I'm sure a lot of people are not familiar with it. And I was mentioning to you before we started here, I saw the other night on Nine News, and wow, you were talking about stuff. I didn't realize that I'm in the media. <laughs> so, yeah, the organization itself got established in 1953. Uh, we've been doing this for 65 years. I have not. I've not been around, <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, but we got started as the Colorado Association for Mental Health. I've gone through a couple changes in the name since then. But the mission has remained consistent. Uh, we're an advocacy group. We're not a treatment provider. We're a nonprofit organization. And we're really trying to change two things. One is public opinion. We want more people to understand that mental illness is not a character flaw, or a figment of the imagination. It's a medical condition, and it doesn't have to be a death sentence. It's treatable. Uh, so we're trying to improve public understanding of mental health and substance use disorders, and we're also trying to improve public policy uh, to put a greater priority in particular on prevention right. and early intervention instead of turning our jails and prisons into warehouses for people with mental illness or drug addiction. Wow, that creates a dramatic picture in my mind. That's Interesting. Well, we, yeah, we've learned this the hard way, I think, in the sense that uh, our criminal justice system uh, has become the chief source of treatment outside of Medicaid for mental health and substance use disorders, which is just about the most expensive and least therapeutic environment we could pick. Really? 
it's uh, I think time that Coloradans change course. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a quote attributed maybe wrongly to Winston Churchill. He said, you can always count on the American people to do the right thing once they've exhausted all the other options. <laughs> uh, and That's so when it comes to mental health care, I think we've exhausted the other options. It turns out to be a lot cheaper and smarter and more effective and more humane to treat mental illness than to ignore it or to criminalize it. And why have it seems like we have ignored it though, Andrew, for for years. Are we embarrassed as families and or we just didn't understand it? What is it? Yeah, so I think yes is the answer to both of those questions. I mean, the brain is a very complex organ. We haven't unlocked all of its mysteries. Uh, we don't understand how it works as well as other parts of the body, and so we fear what we don't understand. It's one of the reasons we treat people differently when they suffer from mental illness than from any other uh, medical condition. And that treatment, the the shame, the stigma, the the discrimination we sometimes attach to mental illness discourages people from seeking treatment. I'll tell you just one quick statistic. Sure, go for it. Uh, we, every two years, the state conducts a survey. It takes a representative sample of the population, asks about their access to health care, including mental health care. Uh, specifically, it asks, did you need mental health services in the last 12 months? Did you get them? And why not? I will tell you that more than a third of the population who needed but didn't get mental health care said they were either worried about what would happen if someone found out, or they weren't comfortable discussing what they regarded as personal problems, even with a health professional. Those aren't answers you'd expect to hear with regard to any other medical condition, right? If you had a, a bump or a lump or some other symptom, you wouldn't be worried about what would happen if someone found out. No, not at all. And is it a treatment issue? I mean, if you have arthritis, they know exactly pretty much what to do. But mental health seems to be so different depending on the person. Uh, that's fair. Uh, but, you know, treatment is improving. Uh, and I'll give you another example from, from my own family. Um, I have a, a twin sister who is seven minutes older than I am. She will tell you those were the best seven <laughs> minutes of her life <laughs> because she's a brat. Uh, but she also suffers, like my cousin did, from depression. It's a genetic condition that happens to run in our family. Uh, my sister's depression was so deep that she cut herself off from our family for four years. I didn't talk to her, neither did my mother wow. or father. It's a terrible period in our lives and obviously in hers. Eventually, she sought treatment. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't automatic. It was a process, as is so often the case, of trial and error. For my sister, it meant a combination of counseling and medication. Uh, and it seems to be working. It's likely she'll need that combination of treatment for the rest of her life because this is a, a chronic condition. But I'm here to tell you, having not spoken to my sister for four years, I now hear from her several times a day. I tell people the treatment was too effective. Um, and so I, I joined this organization because I wanted more stories to end in in hope and recovery uh, like my sister's and fewer stories to end in tragedy and despair like my cousin's. Yeah, that's it's good we have a leader like you out there beating the streets and getting some stuff done. Thank now, you. we look at the issues dealing here, in, and let's talk about Colorado. Mental health, substance use in Colorado, what is it we're facing here? Maybe other places are not. So we do have some of the highest rates of substance use disorders in the country. We also have lower rates of funding for treatment of drug and alcohol addiction. There's a connection between those two facts. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got about half a million people in the state who are going without the care they need for a mental health or substance use disorder. In the survey I mentioned earlier, it turns out cost is the single biggest barrier. Oh. More than half the folks who said, yeah, I needed mental health care, I couldn't get it, said they couldn't afford it. Um, a number of them, uh, almost half said, they didn't think their insurance would cover it. Um, and even folks who have insurance often have difficulty finding a provider who will take it. So those are all big barriers that we're trying to tackle. Wow, that's a 
challenge. I don't know. Providers will turn down somebody even if they have insurance? Yeah, unfortunately, especially in places where mental health professionals are few and far between, a lot will tell you, I'll, I'll take cash, but I'm not interested in accepting the lower reimbursement rates that insurance companies provide or going through all the hurdles that the insurers set up. There is a law in the state, has been for 20 years, and the country for that matter, that says insurance companies have to provide equal coverage for mental health and physical care. Uh, the trouble is, like any law, it's just a paper promise unless you actually enforce it. Yeah. So we're working with the insurance industry and the division of insurance, the state agency that regulates that industry, uh, to try to enforce mental health parity, which is the law that I'm describing. Well, wow. let's talk about some of the laws. I know you are taking and tackling some things in the legislature now, too. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So we're looking at a pair of proposals here, uh, one of which seems to be controversial. The other it looks like it'll actually pass. Uh, we know that there are about 35,000 folks each year who experience a mental health crisis so severe that they're either gravely disabled or pose an imminent danger to themselves or others. We want to make it harder for those folks to get guns and easier for those folks to get treatment. Uh, and we're working on a pair of proposals to do exactly that. Uh, the treatment costs money, but again, it's much cheaper than ignoring the mental illness they face. I think so. So we found bipartisan support for a piece of legislation named Senate Bill 270. We've got Democrats and Republicans in both chambers signed on right. to that bill to create a transition team, folks who will help people exiting those mental health emergencies get health care and housing and treatment, supportive services they need so they don't end up in another pattern of crisis. Um, the proposal called a red flag law, the other bill I'm talking about, uh, has been trickier, uh, even though we've gotten great support from law enforcement. Even the NRA has agreed that if you are so seriously mentally ill that you pose a significant danger to yourself or others, you shouldn't have guns. Right. And a lot of those folks, frankly, um, are more, far more at risk of, of suicide than of violence. Most people with mental illness, I want to point out, are not violent. Uh, they're far more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. Are you on the cutting edge in the country with this? So that's a great question, and I think Colorado ought to be. Look, uh, there's no reason on earth that this state couldn't become the national leader in the prevention and treatment of mental health. And exactly what I'm disorders. thinking. We should be. We're not. Uh, I will give you a little spoiler alert. We took a <laughs> uh, look at the national rankings and found uh, a few months ago that Colorado ranked 43rd, not number one, wow. uh, because we have higher rates of mental health and substance use disorders, particularly substance use disorders, uh, and lower rates of funding for treatment. So, yeah, we are trying to advance our case here, but it's been too slow. And I tell you, this is literally a matter of life or death. Uh, access to treatment could spell the difference between your ability to lead a healthy and productive and rewarding life uh, and much more fatal consequences. So why is it taking so long in Colorado? Is it that I, I have friends back east who go, oh, you live in the wild, wild west. You'll never get gun control. I'm going, no, I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, I mean, issues of guns are obviously controversial in Colorado. And what we're proposing here, again, has the support of the National Rifle Association. It's a proposal that says uh, if a family member or a law enforcement officer has reason to believe that you pose a significant danger to yourself or others, uh, that person ought to be able to go to court and persuade a judge to issue what's called an extreme risk protection order to have law enforcement remove the guns uh, from your home uh, for a temporary uh, period of time, assuming there's appropriate evidence and protection for your due right. process rights. And then you have the right to petition to have your guns returned when the danger passes. So it's a very modest proposal, um, but uh, it has been difficult to get this bill through the legislature. 
here in Colorado. In Colorado. Yeah, that's a good point. So half a dozen other states have passed yeah. these red flag laws. Uh, we've just been a little slower. Why is that? I, I don't know. The is it a political thing? I mean, why would why would anybody be against that? Some folks fear that it's a slippery slope, that even though this proposal is very limited and narrow, uh, that it could lead to more dramatic restrictions uh, on gun ownership. I think there is broad consensus among the public that for uh, a certain narrow group of individuals, access to firearms should be restricted in this fashion. And the evidence from other states suggests if you do this, you can reduce the risk of suicide. Uh, most gun deaths, it turns out, are suicides. Yeah. Uh, about two-thirds of gun deaths nationally, about three-quarters in Colorado, uh, are suicides. And uh, obviously a gun is the most lethal means of suicide. Tough road there. Don't give up. Well, thanks. No, we're <laughs> not going to give up. No, I uh, hope not. Uh, let's talk about Mental Health Colorado and what you're doing in the local communities to get more services to them, too, because I think that would be a big hurdle. Yeah, I'll tell you, a lot of communities are taking the lead here. I, I had a uh, meeting last fall in Eagle County up in Vail sure. and Edwards and Eagle. Uh, the county commissioners were concerned about the rate of mental illness and substance use disorders in their county, which happens to lie 120 miles from the nearest psychiatric facility. So you can drive west to Grand Junction or east to Denver, but if you're in Eagle County where 50,000 people sure. live and you've got a mental health crisis, you might be out of luck. It's one of the reasons the suicide rate in Eagle County is higher than in the rest of the state. And, and of course, Colorado's suicide rate is higher than the national average. In any event, the, the Board of County Commissioners held a hearing uh, to debate this subject. Uh, the chair of the board asked me, should we wait for Washington to solve this problem? And I said, Madam Chair, if we're going to wait, right, this is going to be a very long hearing. Uh, so they decided not to wait. They referred to the ballot a question to impose a 5% tax on the sale and production of recreational, not medicinal marijuana and dedicate the proceeds to mental health and substance use services. The county commissioners all said yes. The business community, law enforcement, the, the, the sheriff, the police chiefs, uh, educators, and, uh, and, and health care professionals. And the voters said yes. That measure passed in Eagle County by a margin of three to one. Uh, so now Eagle wow. County will have $1.2 million a year for mental health and substance use services. So do they have to build a facility now there? Is so, that how that's going to work? So they're looking at expanding some existing facilities, co-locating mental health into right. some primary care settings, which is a really effective model. Um, and I'll tell you, the, the margin of victory, uh, this 74% victory, was so significant that Eagle County's success prompted a number of other counties to call us and ask for help as well. So we're working on measures now from Denver to Larimer. Other parts of the state are looking at doing similar proposals. Yeah, I was just thinking that that's got to be an issue. The more rural you get, where do they get help in the state of Colorado? Yeah, it's a terrific point, Murphy. So look, yeah. uh, if you're in rural Colorado, chances are you don't have as many mental health professionals or maybe even any as in the urban parts of the state. Uh, chances are stigma may be more acute in a small town where everybody knows your name. Uh, one of the things we're looking wow, at yeah. is is telehealth. So can you beam in? a therapist to a place where he or she may not be physically present, use technology, in other words, sure, to, to sure. make mental health care virtually available. That would be a great idea. It's working in, in a lot of places, uh, and we just need to make sure that no matter where you live, no matter what your zip code or your size of your bank account, you have access to mental health care. Absolutely. Great idea, for sure. We're talking with Andrew Romanoff, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado. May is Mental Health Month, and we're going to get to that. But I'm curious about you have such a focus on uh, children and early intervention. Why is that? What's your thinking behind that? Yeah, so the, 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 the approach is rooted in the evidence. We know that uh, in most cases, the first signs of mental illness appear at an early stage. So when, if you look across a lifetime of mental health disorders, you'd find in half the cases, the, 
symptoms first appeared by the age of 14 and in three quarters of the cases by the age of 24. So adolescence turns out to be the period in which most, not all, but most forms of mental illness first manifest their symptoms. And yet there's a delay uh, between the onset of symptoms and the arrival of treatment, uh, a delay that lasts on average for eight to 10 years. Holy cow. We're trying to close that gap by putting a greater emphasis on prevention and early detection, early intervention, uh, particularly in school-based services. We've been working with a lot of superintendents and school board members and principals, teachers, parents, students, to figure out how we can uh, embed mental health care into the school where kids are a fairly captive audience. Is is that also a problem at home? I mean, if I'm a mom and dad and I see things with my child, are you thinking, oh, he's he's just a kid or he's just growing up? And but by the time they do realize that he is much older. Yeah, that is obviously the single most important factor that's going on is what can we do to help parents uh, and families take care of these issues um, more important than, than what goes on at school or elsewhere. It's one of the reasons we put up on our website. If you go to mentalhealthcolorado.org, mentalhealthcolorado.org, you can find a set of screening tools. So you can take a quiz uh, if you're a parent and worried about a kid. Oh, you that's can, great. You can take a screening if you're a kid uh, yourself. Or there's a, there's a screening tool we put up for depression. There's one for anxiety disorders, eating disorders. Um, if you just go to uh, mentalhealthcolorado.org slash screenings, you can take one of these questionnaires. It's not a formal diagnostic instrument. It's just right. a self-assessment. But the best part is once you fill out the questions, the screening tool will tell you where you might be able to turn for help. Yeah, my next question. So if you find something out, what do you do next? And you're going to help them with that. Right, yeah. You know? it does, screening doesn't do much good if there's not <laughs> exactly a of treatment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, talk a little bit about this. Uh, you're about to launch a school toolkit statewide. That sounds intriguing. What is that? So we've been spent the last year or so looking at the evidence around school-based mental health strategies. Uh, what kind of training do teachers need, not to diagnose or to treat mental illness, that's right. not their job, uh, but at least to spot some of these symptoms. How do you engage families, as you were asking uh, in this process? How do you screen kids? How do you put more mental health professionals in the school building? And we've compiled that research into a toolkit that lays out 10 evidence-based strategies that schools and school districts can pursue. Uh, we want to help schools understand what works, how much it costs, how to pay for it, uh, and then make this kit available to all 1,800 schools across the state. So how are you getting the word out doing that? That sounds like a big process. So May, as you said, is Mental Health Month, and we're having a signing ceremony at the Capitol May 1st. Folks are invited to come at noon to the West Foyer of the Capitol May 1. Uh, and we'll be talking about this school kit. We'll make it available for free online, uh, and making it electronic will help us update it and customize it over time as people figure out how to improve it. That's a great thing. Yeah, I, th I think so. I I'll tell you the, just one bit of evidence here. We took a look at what happens to kids who are referred to mental health care outside of the school. So you take a kid, you say, hey, you probably need to go talk to a, a therapist. I'm going to give you a referral. Go to this agency across town. The chances that kid makes that trip are about one out of 10. Oh, Maybe your folks don't have a car. Maybe there's too much stigma attached to going to a mental health agency. But if you can work with the agency or employ a mental health professional to put a therapist in the building, I'm talking about a school counselor, a psychologist, a social worker, well, then the chances that kid gets the care she needs go from one out of 10 to nine out of 10. Wow. So just putting mental health professionals in schools is not the whole ballgame, but it really dramatically increases the chances that kids will get mental health care. 
Do you feel any pushback from these ideas? I mean, are educators saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're kind of watching this stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. So we started this conversation a couple of years ago. We're asking educators what they wanted to do, what they were doing, what stopped them from doing what they need. Uh, and they said, you know, we don't have enough time in the school day. We don't have enough money in the school budget. We don't have enough mental health professionals in the community with training around uh, pediatric conditions. Uh, and and some of them said this is just another thing that society has shortchanged and now you're sticking schools with a tab. So what we didn't do was propose another unfunded mandate. We did not go to the legislature and say, hey, right. make schools do all these things. Don't help them pay for it and then ding them <laughs> if they don't. That's an approach that we've seen before. It doesn't work very well. No. no. Uh, what we're trying to create instead is a, an opportunity for schools to pursue, give them the information they need, uh, engage parents and family members. Uh, and then help them figure out how to fund it. The, the Eagle County measure I mentioned sure, earlier sure. includes funding for prevention and early intervention, and we're hoping other counties and school districts across the state will follow that lead. Funding is always an issue, though, isn't it? It's always the number one issue. It is. Uh, it is a concern, uh, and obviously we have a state with limited resources uh, and constitutionally imposed constraints, but you can do the math. Uh, if you invest early in mental health care, if you can prevent some of these conditions from reaching a crisis point, you can save money down the line. We are losing, as a country, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in lost productivity uh, because of untreated mental illness. And when people don't get their mental illness treated, they often don't show up for work. Or they do show up, but they're not all there. Right. So you can trace the consequences on uh, the economy, incarceration rates, homelessness, uh, foster care, you name it, we're paying for it. We ought to figure out a way uh, to save some money and save some lives. And again, saving it would be starting at a young age. And That's right. Until they get to a certain point where it's costing a lot of money. Yeah, and in some ways, actually, our school toolkit is a little late in the game. So we're developing a companion toolkit for early childhood. What can you do between the ages of birth and five, whether you're a parent or a pediatrician or a child care provider, to improve mental wellness and mitigate the effects of adverse childhood experiences and reduce the costs that are associated with mental illness down the line. A lot of work there. I've been, this is kind of a, a question from me. I've been curious because I know once a person gets to be 21, they're on their own. And if there's mental health problems, the parents can't help anymore. And how do you solve that problem? Because they're out there, now they're on their own out there. Or even 18. Yeah. So this is probably the most heartbreaking conversation I have with uh, families across the state. They say, look, my kid is mentally ill. He's an adult. He has a, a mental illness that is making him a danger, uh, but it's not an imminent danger. The, the law says if your mental health disorder makes you an imminent danger, then we can hold you against your will for 72 hours to evaluate you. Um, and in some cases, we can even uh, certify you for involuntary treatment. We can commit you. In no. most cases, though, folks, even with serious mental illness, don't meet that standard. So the question we get from family members is, what can we do about that? And we haven't had a good answer to that question right. because we've got a balanced concern for a person's civil liberties, uh, their own independence, with what we believe to be their best interests. Um, the, the bill, one of the, the bill I mentioned earlier that we're working on, I think will give a better answer because we've talked to families who say, my kid has been in these cycles of uh, mental health emergencies for all his life. Uh, and when he gets out of that crisis, uh, he needs treatment, he needs health care, he needs housing. Um, so we're proposing an approach that will wrap a team of mental health professionals around a person in those circumstances and get them support rather than let them fall through the cracks. 
When I saw your interview on uh, on Nine News, and, and there was a mother involved with a very situation like that, and her son had gone into one of those 72-hour situations, seems to be fine, comes out, not fine, goes back, seems to be fine. It seems like an endless circle of some of that. Right, but we're trying to end that circle. We're trying to break the cycle of crisis by getting folks support, especially housing, residential placement, um, services that will help somebody get treatment and find a place to live instead of condemning them to, to live in the, on the streets. I'm just curious, going back a little bit about the education involvement with mental health, if teachers or counselors find a situation and they address the parents, is there pushback from the parents? They're saying, wait a minute, this is my son, he's fine. I certainly talk to some parents uh, who are concerned that uh, labeling a kid, diagnosing a kid, medicating a kid can lead too far, uh, or that somehow the diagnosis itself is a badge of shame, a reflection of their failure as a parent. Uh, and it's a, a really tough uh, conversation because the truth is it's not a reflection of your quality as a parent. These are medical conditions, often genetic in origin, um, sometimes shaped by environmental factors, uh, and I, I want to make sure that people understand uh, mental illness, like physical illnesses, are treatable. Uh, we just need to make sure that people are appropriately diagnosed before it's too late. Well, it's like any health issue. Early detection is important. Right. Now, that's true in this field, perhaps more than any other. You know, I mentioned earlier, when I was growing up, my mom was a social worker. Uh, my dad, it turns out, was a prosecutor. Now, it's not a combination I recommend. They got divorced. But uh, it does tell you something about where you want to make a difference. Uh, my mom worked at a state mental hospital in Columbus, Ohio, when I was a kid. And at the time, the conditions in a lot of those facilities were so terrible that the institutions themselves were shut down during a wave of what was once called deinstitutionalization. Uh, some folks didn't get the help they needed when the asylums were emptied. And some of them wound up in trouble with the law. I'll bet. Which landed them in my dad's courtroom. He was a prosecutor and then a judge. And I've wondered ever since how many of the defendants my dad's sentence might have started out as patients in my mom's mental hospital. Um, and in the end, I took my mom's side of this argument. We ought to intervene early, uh, treat this as a public health problem, not as a criminal justice problem. Seems like an ongoing uh, battle, Andrew. It is, uh, but I think we're making progress. We've heard from Democrats and Republicans across the state who understand this is not a partisan issue. Uh, we need to team up. We need to do something. We've been very pleased with the progress we made in this year's legislative session. We obviously have more to do. We're not at a point where we can declare victory, not until every single Coloradan has access to mental health care. Well, and I think, and you addressed this issue a little earlier, public awareness is so important. And what at Mental Health Colorado are you, like with Mental Health Month coming up in May, are you doing things? Let's get the word out. Be more aware. Yeah, one of the things, well, two, two things I mentioned we're doing. One is to hold community presentations across the state. So if your Rotary Club or Kiwanis Club or Lions or Elks or Tigers or Bears or any <laughs> civic group wants to invite us. We're available for weddings and bar mitzvahs. So you can certainly uh, call and we'll be happy to share a presentation about these issues. The other thing we're doing is to build a network of advocates. Uh, we call it the brainwave. Uh, the idea is to identify a champion in every single community across the state. We've got about 300 folks on this list right now who will act as the eyes and ears and voice of this movement who will buttonhole their legislators and school board members and other public decision makers and say, hey, this issue matters to me, and I want you to do something about it. Um, that's a network that we've been building for the last couple of years, and I'm proud to say uh, we are mobilizing that team in communities throughout Colorado. I think you hit it right in the head when you said it takes a network of people, not just one or two. 
Well, that's right. I mean, look, we could send a lobbyist to the Capitol to make the case for a particular bill or one or two people could sure. show up. Sure. Uh, but I tell my team all the time, we have 5 million potential supporters in Colorado. They just don't all know it yet because uh, <laughs> this is a cause that touches us all. Well, it sure does. So talk again, let's repeat about uh, this proclamation day that's coming up in May and how people can be involved with that. So um, every year we designate May as Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, the governor signs a proclamation at the Capitol. We'll talk this year about some of the school resources that you right. asked about earlier. Um, the event itself takes place uh, May 1st in the West Foyer on the first floor of the state Capitol. It's free and open to the public. You can find the details on our website at mentalhealthcolorado.org, mentalhealthcolorado.org. If people, that would be the website to go to. If you have any questions, again, screenings to find out if it's in your house, what other information can you find on that website? So you can learn how to join the WAVE, this network of advocates sure. we call the Brain Wave. You can learn about some of the legislation we're tracking. You can find your state legislator. If you go to the Take Action part of our website, you can type in your address, figure out who represents you in the state house or state senate. Legislative session is obviously almost over, but it's not too early to get a head start uh, on next year. I'll tell you one other thing you can find. If you go to the uh, Governor 2018 page, you'll find uh, the video of a gubernatorial debate. For the first time ever, we asked all the candidates running for governor, in this case, we got six Republicans, three Democrats, to share a stage for an hour and answer questions about mental health and substance use policy. Where is that again? Uh, that would be excellent to look yeah, at. Yeah, so if you go to mentalhealthcolorado.org slash governor2018, governor2018. Got it. Um, you can find the 60-minute video, or if you don't have that much time, we put together a four-minute recap of their answers. That's a great idea. Thanks. Yeah, we figured um, candidates for office have to answer tough questions all the time about gun control or abortion sure, or other sure. hot topics. We want to make sure that mental health is on their agenda, too. Well, good job for sure. Andrew Romanoff, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado. Wow, you're really doing a great job. Thanks, Murphy. But I mean, well, we met several years ago at an event, and you were, were in the politician or politics part of your life, and now you've segued into where it's got to feel like you're really reaching out and helping and touching people more so than in politics. I tell you, I left politics because of illness. The the voters got sick of me. That's a <laughs> line I heard once. Uh, oh, that's crazy. Trying to make a difference every day. Well, continue up the good work. Uh, Mental Health Colorado it is. If you need help, it's mentalhealthcolorado.org. A lot of questions could be answered there. And May is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. So if you've got questions, that's probably the time to get the word out, wouldn't you say, Andrew? Thank you very much. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for coming in today. Absolutely. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. The number of persons age 65 and older is expected to increase by 68% between 2018 and the year 2030. This age group currently represents 14.2% of the total state population. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. May is Older Americans Month, and on this edition, as the state legislature wraps up its annual cycle, we look at some of the legislation passed and the bills proposed that fell to the wayside, having the focus of supporting seniors. Joining us is Ms. Eileen Doherty, Executive Director of the Colorado Gerontological Society, operators of the service, SeniorAnswers.org. I guess there was something, a bill on um, dementia diseases and related disabilities down there that they were trying to pass. What was that bill about? That bill was basically to bring more awareness to the whole area of dementia. Sometimes over the last um, couple of decades, Alzheimer's has been perceived to be the only 
disease that was really a dementia. And what this bill has done is it's expanded um, the definition beyond Alzheimer's to multiple other diseases that have or carry a dementia diagnosis. It also updated the state's statutes and the state rules so that everything is more inclusive of dementia as opposed to exclusive of only including folks with Alzheimer's. Isn't there some confusion the general public has? And I know you're not a doctor with this, but they tend to equate dementia and Alzheimer's as being one and the same. There is a lot of confusion about that, yes. But the true definition of dementia is one basically in which the person's brain is unable to um, cognitively process information. Yeah. And that is the result not only of Alzheimer's, although that is the predominant chronic disease that one experiences, but there are other um, diseases as well that uh, the individual experiences dementia like symptoms. And so what this attempted to do was to be more inclusive of those other 10 or 15 diagnoses that carry dementia, which is not Alzheimer's related. For example, you could have an alcohol-induced dementia, um, which is not Alzheimer's, but is really the result of brain deterioration and dysfunction as a result of too much alcohol. I know a lot of baby boomers are have said on surveys that is the one health thing that they're afraid of more than anything is uh, dementia. Yes, and, you know, another baby boomer, young adult kind of problem um, as a result of concussions, Um, especially many of the individuals who participated in various kinds of sports, both men and women. And that's, again, not an Alzheimer's dementia, but a dementia. Another one I think that passed was something uh, putting a a cap on fee increases for assisted living residences. Now, is that the money they pay to get in there, or is that uh, yearly annual increases? What was that bill about? The assisted living fee increase bill is that basically for a number of years now, the Colorado Department of Public Health, which licenses assisted living facilities, has not had enough money to actually do surveys every single year of every single assisted living, which is required by statute. And so what this particular bill has done is it has increased the fees that assisted livings pay to the state of Colorado so that there will be more surveyors available to protect the public. They still will not have enough funding to visit every facility every year, but their goal at this point is to put it on a three-year rotation. So two years, they would do more of a desk audit, desk survey, and then one year, an in-person survey. The other thing that was going on and has been going on with assisted living is that there's a whole new set of rules which will take effect July one. Um, Many of those rules will significantly impact such things as kitchen regulations, such as remodeling and rebuilding regulations, changes in staffing requirements, changes in resident engagement. So there's a lot of, I think, really beneficial things coming down to improve care. 
There is some concern at this point in time among industry individuals as to whether or not those individuals who will be caring for uh, folks who need Medicaid, especially those in the smaller buildings, whether they will be able to continue to service that Medicaid resident. But on the positive side, there was also an increase by the Joint Budget Committee to increase the reimbursement for Medicaid uh, residents to facilities. Hopefully there will be enough of an increase that many of the uh, facilities that do not accept Medicaid residents might be able to take some Medicaid, um, but there's a lot of concern at this point in time because of the new rules on increased rates for both private pay and the loss of Medicaid beds in the inventory. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of sort of unknowns at this point in time in terms of all the good things that the rules will bring, how that's going to affect um, both seniors who are private pay, whether they'll see significant rate increases, and those who are Medicaid residents, whether they'll be able to continue to live in Medicaid. So a year from now, we should have better information on what's happening. With assisted living, there's two sides of that. I think I'm, I'm being a really novice now, but there are facilities, residences that uh, care for people under assisted living, and then you can get some assisted living support at home for in-home as well under Medicaid. Is that correct? You can get support um, in your own home. Under Medicaid, yeah. it's not called assisted living. It's actually called home and community-based services. Ah. Uh, but it comes out of the same pot of money, if you will, out of healthcare policy and financing, which is the agency that administers Medicaid funds. In addition to that, there's also a separate pile of money at the state level in which met, you can get Medicaid home care if you are not eligible for home and community-based services, but you still need some skilled services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I think you mentioned in there that there's a concern about a shortage of beds. Now, I guess I was interpreting it as that maybe not enough people are going to be keeping their homes or something what they needed in home, or maybe there's just a shortage of facilities, and you see this growing number of boomers in about 10 or 15 years where they're going to need that, and there's no place for them to go. There is a lot of concern at this point in time on some of us who are looking into the future that as baby boomers will, you know, many of them turn 75 in 10 years or so. Currently, there's a capacity of about 23,000 assisted living beds in Colorado, if you look at the numbers and you use some of the Genworth numbers, which is a national insurance company, they project that yeah. about 8% of the population at any one point in time is in nursing homes and or assisted living. And if you divide those kind of in half, 8% of the 65-plus um, population in 2030 will be more than 100,000 people possibly needing either nursing home or assisted living beds. Given that, I don't think there's any way that our 
state will ever be able to have that many assisted living beds, but but there will be, I think, a significant need or increase in the number of beds over the next ten years. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the boomers who are thinking of keeping their homes that might be a real good idea. I would highly suggest that if you can figure out how to make that happen, that's probably a good idea, mostly because it will be cheaper. Um, uh-huh. to probably live in your own home, even with if care you and have support to, if you have to buy right? various kinds of cares and care and support services. Yeah, I, I know. I was um, chatting with some other people over the residence facility called Windsor Gardens, and they were talking about reverse mortgaging out, and then my retirement will be good. And I said, well, you know, retirement really comes in three phases, and we always talk about the first phase of going to play golf, but assisted living is right behind that, and that price tag is a heck of a lot higher. And if you need to reverse, you're going to need it for that. And then you have right behind that you uh, nursing homes. And, and then you have hospice. But And those are all higher. And so, well, I didn't think about it like that. Yes. Now, the hospice services themselves are actually a Medicare Part A benefit. But the room and board charges, those still come out of your pocket. The older we get, we still have more stuff we have to pay. We were talking about the legislature, though. There were there seemed to be a lot of other health uh, or healthcare related uh, legislation that was out there, like uh, patient choice of pharmacy. Uh, we don't know what's happened there, but I thought we all currently did have a choice of whatever pharmacy we wanted to go to, unless you were under Kaiser, who has their own pharmacy rolling, but all the rest of them don't. Well, actually, under the Affordable Care Act, as well as under Medicare Part D, the insurance companies actually write agreements with certain pharmacies and not with other pharmacies in terms of trying to keep prices under control. And that particular bill was looking specifically at people who are under the Affordable Care Act and trying to increase, if you will, the range of pharmacies that might be available. Another one um, I think may have died or maybe still in committee and may or may not make it to prohibit price gouging on prescription drugs. I would think everybody wants to do that to, to, to slow that game down, but many of those things get trapped up there to legislature and, and, and get killed because there's no support for them. Well, I think the other thing is... Um, Sometimes we think what would be a reasonably a reasonable solution to those kinds of things. Price gouging is one of those things that's very, very hard to regulate in a capitalistic society. And small business, capitalism, you know, price setting is actually against the law. And so those kinds of things get really very difficult to regulate at what is perceived to be a really important consumer issue. But then we have all of these protections uh, for fair pricing and price controls and who can discuss prices. And that gets kind of um, difficult then to really regulate that in our society. They also had a bill to, uh, regarding Medicaid, uh, Medicaid fraud. I guess, setting up a Medicaid fraud control unit? There's actually already a Medicaid fraud control unit um, that's been around for many, many years. And what this basically is set out to do is to increase their ability to, again, manage and oversee that. 
particular program. I guess the thing that surprised me that hadn't that didn't get voted through um, at all was the disclosure of prescription costs at pharmacies. I, th- I thought we knew those things, you know, generic costs versus versus brand label costs, and we could uh, determine which one we wanted to do because a lot of people were doing it by cost. Well, and you can still get that under the Medicare Part D program. You can get some of that under Medicare Part or under the Affordable Care Act as well. But what this bill was really trying to look at was, and I'll just use random numbers, if, say, Pfizer or Merck or one of those large companies was selling prescriptions to a pharmacy benefit manager, and then the pharmacy benefit manager is actually selling them to the retail pharmacy like at Safeway or King Supers or Walmart or wherever. There's multiple layers of that. And what this bill was actually really trying to get at is what is the pharmaceutical company selling the prescription drug to the pharmacy benefit manager? Because there's some sense at this point in time that the pharmacy benefit managers are not necessarily passing along all of the discounts that the pharmaceutical companies are giving them to the actual consumer. And so part of what this is trying to do is to get more disclosure at multiple levels. And the other thing is that that one's also hard because King Supers may pay the pharmacy benefit manager a different amount for Cyprexa than they would pay Safeways. So there's also a lot of distinct or a lot of variation there. So I think we still have a lot more work to do to try to figure out how to really make that a useful and benefit tool for uh, consumers. Ms. Eileen Doherty, the executive director of the Colorado Gerontological Society, is our guest on this edition. Their event, Creative Aging, formerly known as Salute to Seniors, is coming up on Saturday, May 12th, 9 a.m. at the Colorado Convention Center. With a future technology-themed expo and a live music tribute to Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, this resource fair for seniors is absolutely free. For information, it is online at senioranswers.org or by calling 1-866-294-3971. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch, stay in your game, and we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Well, very good Sunday morning to you. I'm Melissa Moore. Thank you so much for being here for Mile High Magazine. We've got a big event coming up. It is May 9th. It's called Rope and Rascals. And the founders and really the brain people behind this, Brent and Tanya Hua, are here today to tell us about it. Good morning, you guys. Good morning. So tell me a little bit about Rope and Rascals and what it's all about. So Rope and Rascals is a, is a charity event we do. We have uh, special needs come out. And really, it's just a chance for them to be a cowboy for the day. So it's kind of two parts. So first part is is, is to get the kids to come out. So local kids, uh, special needs programs will come out and spend the day with us. And then uh, we have a special needs cheer team, special needs basketball team that will join us in the afternoon. Um, they can ride horses, drive John Deere Gators, a stagecoach ride, just kind of whatever they want to do, rope. So those are the activities in the in the morning, and the afternoon, and then we have uh, we're gonna have a dinner, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we're going to play horse football. All right, we'll come back to that horse football here in a few minutes. But this is a charity event for special needs kids coming up on May 9th. Are there tickets still available? There is. Um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, we're about sold out, but we do have a few tickets left, yes. Okay, and how much are tickets? They're $500. Okay, and we talked about Rope and Rascals benefiting special needs children. Exactly who does it benefit or what organizations? So it all goes to the kids. Um, Special needs kids, uh, the cheer team, the basketball team, and then also uh, Make-A-Wish. All right, and Tanya, let me ask you this. How many years has Rope and Rascals been around? This will be our second year hosting Rope and Rascals. Okay, and how did you guys decide? Like, what brought this whole idea about? Um, well, we actually have a daughter of our own that has special needs, and we do a lot of interaction stuff with her, with um, rodeo and showing animals and stuff. And her siblings and us, we all decided that, you know, it's a great opportunity and what we see, how she blossoms and smiles and how it makes her happy, that there's so many kids that would love and benefit from this kind of interaction. So we decided that we're going to give it a whirl and try it, and it's been a success so far. So we've had some really good um, experiences. Last year was our first, of course, and we had several of the schools that came out, and we had a, a moment where there was a, a a girl that was in our our group that hadn't spoke for four years to her family, and after she had the horse interaction and just being out there, she talked. And I mean, she was having conversations with us, and we never had any idea that she had not spoke for four years. That is an incredible story, and that must have been so emotional for her family. Yes, and like for us, when they were telling us that she hadn't spoke, we were like, "No, you're talking about the same girl," because she was having conversations, eating lunch with all of us, and. <sighs> It wow. was, so when we got to see something like that, that was just, we knew that this was something that we needed to do. And it's life changing for some of these kids. And it's it's an awesome experience to get to be a part of that. Well, it sounds like a wonderful event. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Brent and Tanya Hua, who have started a charity called Rope and Rascals Big Event coming May 9th. And, you know, for so many kids with special needs, there's always that connection with animals. Yes, um, our daughter actually started doing some um, hippotherapy when she was real young. And just that interaction with the horse was, I mean, she got more therapy out of that than just going, doing normal, everyday, one-on-one therapy. And I don't know, there's something about a, an animal, especially mm-hmm. a horse, that's pretty magical with kids. Absolutely. And I know there's books that have been written and movies have been done about special needs children and just the connection that they have with animals. So I love that you're doing this coming up here on May 9th. It's called Rope and Rascals, and it's for the kids here in Colorado. Are there any special charities, organizations that the money is specifically going to that you're raising? Um, Yes. uh, The Cheer Central Sons, the Colorado Sons is actually their technical name. Um, They are a special needs cheerleading team. So they'll be one of our our groups that will benefit. Okay. And also um, a special needs basketball team. Well, that sounds awesome. All right. So Rope and Rascals, big benefit coming up here on May 9th. Where do you hold it at? Um, it's held at our ranch um, in, in our indoor arena in Roggin, Colorado. Where is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you every day I hear of another little town in Colorado where I'm like, I feel like I should know it because I've been here a long time, but I don't know where it is. It's about 45 minutes northeast of Denver. So we are between Hudson and Fort Morgan. Okay. Everybody knows where that is. (laughs) How many people are there in your little town? 
Is there like 500? <laughs> okay, well, I feel small. a lot better now. <laughs> that actually many. makes me feel better because I'm like, if it's like a 55,000 person <laughs> no. town, no, no, it's no. you and your family. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of farmers and ranchers. All right, <laughs> all right. All right, so what were you, so do you have any musical guests that are going to be there as well for Roping Rascals? Yes, we're excited. Runaway June. And uh, can I say something about KYGO too? Sure, we love you mentioning KYGO. Yeah, and Runaway June, they are fantastic. They had their first big hit, Lipstick. I know KYGO brought them to town for that one, and they have really taken off then, so that's going to be a great show. Yes, we're so excited, and and thanks to KYGO for helping get that lined up. We're excited. Uh, Again, just good people all coming together for a great cause. We're very excited to have them come. All right, Roping Rascals coming up on May 9th. Is it an all-day event, or what are the times for this? It is. So it starts at 10 in the morning and it'll go till about 10 at night. And then you have the dinner and the music, I take it, are probably at night then? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Is that what the tickets are for? Yes, correct. Okay. So you've got people that are obviously going to bring their kids and come out for the day. For those kind of people um, that have a child that they're like, wow, you know, I would love to have them come out for this. Is that a ticket as well to do the activities or how does that work? So again, we have a few spots left still. So okay. um, you can go to our website and, and there's a phone number that you can get in contact with us, and and uh, there is a few spots left. Uh, as far as for the kids to join in, for the kids to yes, come okay. participate. Okay, and what is your website? Um, Ropenrascals dot com. Is there an and G since, on that Rope and Rascals? Yeah. Okay, since there we're is. from the country, there is no G. No, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it is ropingrascals.com. Then. No roping. Oh, th- there's truly no G. No G. Okay, okay. <laughs> I thought you were being funny. <laughs> Okay, ropenrascals.com to find out more information. Uh, if you have a child that would be interested, you said there's a few spots or a few tickets available still. Um, so obviously this year sounds like it's already been a success if you only have a couple tickets left. It truly has, yes. The the people that have stepped up and, and chose to participate and, and help us out, It's yeah, it's been great. Well, obviously the last couple of years with Rope and Rascals has been a big success. Are you already thinking about number three next year? Oh, yeah. Well, you have been doing this now for a year. You're going into your second year with Rope and Rascals, which, by the way, coming up May 9th, benefits kids with special needs. And you've put this together as a family, as a couple. What have you really learned about this? And what kind of stories have touched your heart? Look, them. so so we wanted to put on an event, you know, to, to make a difference in kids' lives. But they've truly made more of a difference in our life as and, and us as a family and just... Um, being able to interact with them and and we truly learn probably more from them than they learn from us it's it's a great experience it really is it's got to be a very emotional and heart-tugging day to see all those kids out there and the animals and the connection they're making not just with the animals but to one another and I mean the story um, that you were just telling about the little girl who hadn't for four years she hadn't said a word and then all of a sudden, one afternoon with the animals on the ranch, and she's speaking. And not just speaking, like, you know, having conversations, little chatterbox. Yes. So something is unlocking for these kids being out there with the animals. For sure. And, and not only that, but just seeing the interaction with, with other students that come. Right. And I'm sure that means you have volunteers out there as well. What other kids are out there volunteering? We also have high school kids that come and volunteer and want to interact with these kids as well. And to see them both having fun and laughing and 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 just for them, the, the kids that are helping, to see what the struggles that some of these kids mm-hmm. really go through. I mean, it's life-changing for all of them.
Yeah, I can only imagine what a wonderful event you've got coming up here. So as we're talking about children with special needs uh, benefiting from Roping Rascals, which is where they're interacting with the animals and learning all different kinds of skills. Uh, We say special needs is kind of an umbrella term, but what exactly are we talking about here? What special needs are being serviced? Um, There's several kids um, with Down syndrome, um, autistic, cerebral palsy, um, some of the kids just have, you know, severe sensory issues. Um, mm-hmm. th- it's all a different, they're all very wide, but most of them are autistic and I'd say the Downs and cer- mm-hmm. cerebral palsy. So are there other organizations that you've worked with in town to get the word out so that parents of kids with special needs hear about this? Um, like in the morning for our session, those are from three of the local um, schools out in our area that will be doing that in the morning. And then in the afternoon, it is the cheer team and the basketball team and the Make-A-Wish kids. Wonderful. And what, so for the Make-A-Wish kids, I've interviewed the Make-A-Wish Foundation here in Colorado. And it's it's really interesting how the kids have very specific things that they want. And then they tie them with this. What were some of the, um, I guess, wishes that these kids had or have that you're able to put together. So so we're still working to fill some of those spots. And, and, and part of the reason is, is they need to just make sure that we get, as we get a little closer to the date that those kids can actually uh, make it work for them. But a couple of them that I do know about, um, some uh, one of them's a leukemia kid that's, that's uh, I think he's about five years old and he's kind of a country kid and likes rodeo and, and wants to meet some of these world champions that are going to be coming and playing football with us, horse football. So he's excited. Um, another kid that's uh, has cancer, kind of going through that process, mm-hmm. and and it's very similar for him. A, a country kid loves the rodeo and and horses. And then there's a a 13 year old girl that uh, her wish is she wants to come and and sing her song, the fight song, in, mm. in front of the audience. So awesome! I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. That's going to be great. And you mentioned horse football. What is what is horse football? <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if this is like the Budweiser commercial where the horses are kicking the ball or what are we talking about here? So one day we were just practicing uh, for rodeo and, and it was also during football season. So we just started throwing the football around on the horses. So quarterbacks on a horse, the mm-hmm. receivers on a horse. Uh, so, so you're throwing, throwing the ball and catching the ball horseback. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we made up some rules. So then you got to hand it off and there's a, <laughs> guy on the ground that has to try and run to the other end to make a touchdown and the defensive guys have ropes so they get to try and rope their feet to tackle them before oh they my make the touchdown yeah well i was wondering i was like oh no the poor horses that that are on defense that's gonna hurt all right so and you said you had some celebrities from the rodeo world coming in for that yes yes some world champions and and also uh some football players so oh cool denver broncos uh, nice. Carl Mecklenburg, six-time Pro Bowler. Oh, I love Carl. That'll be a lot Carl of fun. And a uh, uh, kid from K-State, Dalton Reisner. Nice. First time, first team Big 12 guy. So. Are these guys getting on horses? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, Carl Mecklenburg's going to be on a horse. Never know. Maybe. Never know. Never know. All right. Well, sounds like a great event. Once again, it is called Ropin Rascals. It is coming up here on May 9th. Few tickets still available to get your kids involved if you have a special needs child that could really benefit from this. And also a few tickets left for the dinner. And if you didn't hear, Runaway June is going to be there as well that night. And once again, thank you guys for being here. But what is that website? 
www.ropeandrascals.com. And no G on that. No G. (laughs) All right. Thank you both for being here so much. I appreciate it. I'm Melissa Moore. It is Mile High Magazine. Hope you have a great Sunday. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine, a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.